G'day, g'day, guys. How are we all? Uh, unfortunately, today, uh, Dane is not with me. He's got some family situations that he has to deal with, so he has taken a leave of absence for today's episode. Uh, in saying that, I do have our very first brand new guest, uh, Damien, who runs Copperhead Customs, uh, which we will talk all things background making and where he began in reptiles and the whole nine yards. Uh, definitely stick around, especially if you're interested in naturalistic keeping and setup and where the hobby is progressing in future years. This is going to be one that you want you don't want to miss. Um, so I suppose we'll start with uh, introducing Damien. Damien, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Um, so I suppose to start off, like we do with all these interviews, um, where did reptiles begin for you? Where did it all start? Reptiles started for me when I was nine or 10 years old in primary school. I had an environmental studies teacher who loved bringing his reptiles in. And, and as soon as I saw them, I was hooked. And I grew up camping and got to see loads of animal snakes, red bellies and tigers. And we did a trip through the Northern Territory. So I got to see things like blackheads and, and all the stuff like that. So I was just, I think growing up pretty much outside and then having a teacher that encouraged that, it just sort of spiraled from there. And I bugged my parents until they, they said yes, with the help of my teacher bugging them as well. And, and yeah, that's, that's sort of how it got kicked off. That, that is becoming a more and more common uh, situation. It's good to see that um, more and more teachers are getting behind the, the animal world um, as well. Like uh, in the few dealings I've had with different pet shops recently, a lot of them are talking about how other schools are picking up, not maybe not the, the Littledale High School model of going big and, you know, doing all of that, but just having a few animals in the classroom and having that direct interaction it's um, fantastic, and it is a, uh, seems to be a more and more common occurrence of getting the younger generation into reptiles. Um, now, as far as your where, – where did – I suppose, where did keeping reptiles begin for you, and the, the, where did you move from admiring things to keeping them at home? So after finally convincing my parents, I was about 10 years old and went to Russell Grant. What a name. For, yeah. those who, for those who don't know who Russell Grant is, you must be living under a rock. Oh, you, I got got very, very, back then, he wasn't breeding green tree pythons. He had everything from scrubs. I'm pretty sure his wife had a red belly. Uh, he had frogs in the house. It was like a wonderland walking into that house. And I remember the first ones we looked at were jungles. And Good start. He, <laughs> he opened the tub and it was like a barrage of machine gun fire. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, maybe not for your first snake. <laughs> and then we went to the Darwins and we sort of looked at them for a bit and eventually he picked out one that was pretty much the only one that didn't strike at him. And he's right next to me still today, 24 years later. Wow, how's that? Longevity at its finest there, like just just incredible. I think a key thing that stood out to me, and well, I don't remember him saying it, but my mum mentioned it to me the other day. When we went there, he said to us that he's not a reptile breeder, that he's an educator. And I think that's sort of something that I hold 
true to this day is it's not about making money off these animals. It's not about how many you can keep or how quickly you can get them big or how big you can get. It's for me, I have a fascination in learning as much as I can and I don't plan on stop learning. If you don't educate yourself, then I don't see the point. That's it. It's all about that. As as you said, it's all about that constantly learning and figuring out what's going on and why your animals are doing what they're doing. Um, And I suppose it's that constant progression as well. Once you sort of idle at that point, you're kind of losing your touch, I suppose. Um, It's one of those things that you're just constantly evolving, constantly figuring out new things. Um, It's, it's a, great part of the hobby to be in and that, that sort of innovation but also education field and putting the two together and how we keep things and how that compares to what the the wild animals are experiencing as well and kind of intermingling the two situations as well um so all right so you got your first year darwin from uh russell grant and he's now 24 years old uh do you have any any, I suppose, tips or tricks on why you why why you think he's gone that far? Because that is a very impressive age to get to, and you don't hear many of them getting up there these days in that sort of age bracket. Yeah, I think the key to it, and I've ended up in a lot of arguments online with various people, is the feeding. I think I have people giving advice of feeding weekly for adult snakes. And in all honesty, I don't think we fed weekly after the first two months of keeping. I'm pretty sure the average was fortnightly and then as he got older and I got broker, the gaps the gaps increased. I was a broke teenager. Obviously, my parents helped out. They weren't going to let him starve to death or anything, but there were times where he wouldn't get a feed for two, three months. And now that's pretty regular for him. I feed him a jumbo rat or an extra large uh, or a adult quail. And he'll get a feed maybe once a month. And then I will often put him on fasts of two to three months. The longest he ever went, he went on a feed strike when he was about two years old. I made the mistake, and I might cop flack for this, but I don't really care. Uh, I live fed, and I live fed a mouse. And he decided that that was gourmet, and he didn't want to go back to frozen rats. Oh, no. (laughs) And that went on for, for quite a while, and we contacted Russell, and Russell's advice was let him go hungry. He'll eat it when he's ready, which is a harsh way, but when you look at people like Scott Iper and those guys, only the strong survive. If you're not going to eat what you're offered, then too bad, which does sound very harsh, but to the contrast of seeing people having their animals chewed fed because they haven't eaten in three weeks, Mm. my boy went just under 12 months. Yep. And he did lose weight. He did become quite weak. But the advice Russell gave us was make sure he's got water, make sure he's got heat. Offer every two to three weeks, he'll eat when he's ready. Yep. And and he did. (laughs) It took a long time. 
but he did. And now he is flawless. He will not turn down a meal. He'll even eat when he's in shed, begrudgingly, but he will. <laughs> um, but he'll eat whatever I put in front of him. Yep. He'll eat quail, pigeon, mice, well, not mice now because he's seven foot long, but rats. Um, and the more that I've learned about the importance of diversity in diet, uh, how fatty that rats can be, I honestly think the main reason that he is the age he is today is because I was too broke to feed too often. <laughs> um, but even my young one, so well, before we go there, I kept one snake for 22 years before I got another. And just just let that sink in. Just 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 let that sink in for a minute. One single animal for 20 odd years, not the one animal for two weeks and then another seven appear. Yeah, I end up in conversations with people a lot, and it really concerns me how quickly people are getting because my big guy is in a five foot long, three foot deep six foot tall enclosure that I can stand in and he is seven foot long and he's comfortable in that now but for people going oh I only need a four by two by two I'm telling you right now that they will outgrow it and considering Darwin's and coastals are the two most common that you see people getting and they are the two largest I find that very very concerning it's, I suppose it's that um, we're, we're, we're at an interesting stage in reptile keeping now where it's that whole we've, we've gone through the, the, the rack systems and the, the smaller enclosures. I think we're currently at a bit of a, a crossroads situation where you've got some that are pushing the envelope as far as how big can you go? You know, uh, if size is not a problem, how, how large of an enclosure can you do? What, 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 yeah, where, where can you go with that? Um, and then you've still got some that are, shall we say, in the nicest way possible, lagging behind that uh, positive stream, I suppose. Well, um, the reality is things have changed a lot in 22, 23, 24 years. Like when I started keeping, we made a three foot by two foot by two foot top opening viv that my dad handmade. And it was lit by three blue party globes that you just bought from minus 10. And it had uh, the jerry-rigged thermostat stuck to the back wall. And so I'm not bagging anyone for going through the process of getting to a larger enclosure. But I think the aim should be there to progress. Mm. It annoys me seeing subpar keeping being promoted as it's enough Mm. because we can lock a human in a six by six cell and it's enough to keep them alive but would you want to live like that ideally no i think i'd pass on that one (laughs) i think duty of care is to give them enrichment is to give them enough space to get around. I think the reason we're seeing snakes die younger 
is due to overfeeding and lack of enclosure size because if you're eating and not moving, these animals are more efficient than we are. So they're storing more and more. And people, oh, well, it doesn't look fat, but that's because snakes and pythons in particular store their fat against their organs. They don't store it between their skin and their skeleton. Mm. Generally, by the time you look at a snake and go, oh, you look fat, you've already done irreversible damage. Well, that reminds me of there was a post by uh, Matt and Christy at the Natural Herb Keeper, I think it was a year or two ago now, where they had a, it was a species of brown snake that uh, they said had eaten maybe four times a year at best, and it had passed away and they cut it open. And even then, just the amount of fat that was on the body, it just makes you wonder really, doesn't it, about what we're, what we're doing to these animals and how we can better, better progress it, I suppose. And I think, um, the, I think the, 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 the key is, as you have mentioned already, that diversity of feeding. Um, but I think we also need to, in some way, shape or form, add to that diversity. I don't know how currently, how you would go about that. Like, obviously, we've got the options of chicks and chickens. You've got quail, you've got rabbits, you've got rats, you've got mice. But there's, there's a big group of other things that our reptiles that we keep do eat that we don't have as feeder options currently uh, in yeah. any way, shape or form. You look at venomous, for instance, and most of our venomous tigers are rat eaters. That, that's why they hang out in chook pens. But things like browns and rare belly blacks in particular, most of their diet's frogs, mm. frogs and lizards. And unfortunately, in Australia, we're pretty far behind with that sort of stuff. In the UK and in America, you can get reptilinks, which are trying to fill that gap. I would like to see something like that here, and I have looked into sort of whether that's possible to do yourself, but then at the same time, do I really want to be breeding frogs to mm. turn food and go through that whole process? So there's definitely room to improve in every aspect of the industry from yep. storefront encouraging things like the back wall thermostats sure they'll keep your your temperature but not that accurately and unless you give have it, give it five or ten degrees either side yeah and look like, like i said that's how i started i started with using one of those and then upgraded to something that you have more control and you can create more options. And that's something within my keeping and within the backgrounds that I make that I try and provide is as much variation, whether it be temperature, whether it be humidity. We don't know. Like we see them, if we kept how most people see snakes in the wild, every enclosure would look like a bitumen road. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> we see them in one circumstance. Where are they when we don't see them? Yeah. What are they doing? What microhabitat do they find to hide from the heat? And I think that's like you hear the Americans talk all the time and they're like, oh, well, Australia is really hot and the, these animals are from the desert, so they should be kept with zero humidity. It's like, well, at certain times of year, the desert gets really, really bloody cold. And I know that because I slept in a tent in the desert whilst travelling around Australia. <laughs> we did three months living out of tents 
we got flooded into places. We had temperatures where the thermometers were maxing out. You would try and make a sandwich and the bread was essentially toast by the time you got to eat it. Oh, no. (laughs) Crazy environment. But that's not when you see the animals out and about. You see the animals out and about at night when you get that humidity spike from the extreme temperature change and things like that. And that sort of stuff is really difficult to simulate in an enclosure, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Even if it may, even if you just turn your heat off at night to yep. give that variation. Um, another thing with feeding weekly, like these animals aren't winding a meal every week. Mm. These animals might go three months when the animal that is their main prey item is not there. There are species of python on different islands and tiger snakes even that feed majority majority on the mutton bird, which lands on that island twice in a year. And they pick out and the rest of the time they're fasting. So, and I've just finished writing a feeding guide that goes into what happens to a python's system when they eat. And it is so extreme to the point that their blood consistency changes their organs change size and their metabolism changes speed. If we feed them weekly and this process takes 10 days, which is what the estimate is in these studies, then we're keeping them at high revs for long periods of time with no break. You're going to burn out that engine. Like you, you wouldn't run a car like that. You wouldn't sit there with your foot half on the clutch and rev your car until the engine explodes. So why would we do that to our animals that we're keeping? Yeah, it's that whole. I think that that, that whole situation boils down to, I suppose, one key phrase. And it's all about choice, um, choice for the animal in particular. Um, like with as we're we're going to talk about in a minute, all about the setups and that sort of thing, and um, choice and access, I think, is the main things to, to as you said, variation and choice are the keys, I think. Um, and, yeah, you made a lot of very good points there and a lot of things that people should start to consider, I think, about how we do keep our animals and where we can, I suppose, take that from there and, you know, where we can progress as a whole. Um, I think if you're happy to, feel free to run us through the process for a background. Um I suppose starting off with where how you go about collecting your reference photos and then all the way to the end. Go for it. Yeah, all right. So my company, Copperhead Customs, started sort of out of necessity. It was, again, back to being broke. I couldn't afford Universal Rock, but I still wanted an enclosure that looked really nice. And I posted a few photos. They got a fair bit of attention. And I got bored within a month, changed it all, took more photos, (laughs) Um, tried to make a waterfall. It flooded the entire enclosure. Learned the hard way from that one. (laughs) Um, The joys of playing with water. (laughs) After watching The Natural Hurt Keeper with Chrissy, and she literally said, don't even bother trying to do a building waterfall. Unless it's a paludarium with water down the bottom. (laughs) It will leak, and she's not wrong. Um, 
so that's sort of how it started. And then I started getting messages asking if I would build them for someone else. And I did a couple and it spiraled very, very quickly within the space of 12 months. I started on a top in my carport on the ground. I very quickly upgraded to a workbench because it was destroying my knees and back. <laughs> um, and then I was ran out of room there. We couldn't park our cars in the carport anymore. <laughs> uh, then I bought, jumped on Marketplace, bought a three-by-three three shed, just finished setting that up and barely even finished setting it up before I had essentially outgrown that. And now I am working full-time at Tanks by Congo, which is one of our big custom enclosure builders that I was already doing a lot of work for and we brokered a deal and now I'm working there full-time with a space in a factory. Now, in saying that all happened in 12 months, that sounds like a very short period of time, but the process of building these backgrounds stems from things that I was doing as a kid. I've always been an artistic person. I am a big nerd and I'm not ashamed to say so. I play Dungeons and Dragons. I have a massive collection of Warhammer. And after watching channels like Cam's Custom Backgrounds and The Natural Hurt Keeper, I realised that the exact same process that I was building terrain for these games was being used at a larger scale to do these backgrounds. I was like, well, if I can do it on a small scale there's no reason I can't do it on a big scale so that's how I started I played around with expanding foam I didn't like it at all I found that it was very messy very expensive and you had to do so many coats to get a hard finish and I was always paranoid about leaning a branch against it and stabbing a hole in it or as commissions went on most people I'd say probably one of our most common builds up for Bearded Dragons. Mm. Yep. And how long is a, a background going to last with Bearded Dragon clawing its way up and down it constantly? So in most cases, it should be fine. In the case of one of my clients, he had one done out of expanding foam and he put black throat monitors in it. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> That uh, that background lasted about 24 hours before the black throat monitors clawed their way into the back of it, burrowed in behind it, and he couldn't get them out. Oh, no. <laughs> he had to pull that entire background out and destroy the entire thing to get those animals out. Oh, jeez. Uh, things that do often get overlooked. Snakes, it's not so bad. But again, if you're moving things around, you've got branches, rocks, various different things. I find that it damages pretty easy. Yeah. Um, that could be negated by I have heard that grout is a much less flexible uh, surface. I use tile pointing, um, same as Cam from Cam's Custom Backgrounds. Uh, the thing I didn't like about grout was that the work picked up so quickly that the convenience of the tile pointing outweighed the mixing time 
of the grout. That's the only reason that I don't use grout. And I have played around with blending the two in different ways to get different effects, different paintability and things like that. So basically my process, I, first thing I ask is what animal is going into the enclosure? That's, that's the most important step, isn't it? That gives you a very yeah. quick idea of what you're, what you're looking to do and where you can take it, I suppose. So I think the thing that stands out to me the most and the thing that I use as an example a lot, like the listener's not going to be able to hear, but that's there's my big guy out there. Can you see him there? Yep, yep. So for the people that are listening, we've got a, a very large or a, a decently sized Darwin carpet python chilling out in a fantastically done enclosure with rock walls and the whole nine yards. Now, the interesting thing, and we'll circle back to this, is he is actually basking under the full-spectrum plant light. Oh, yeah. Okay, we will, we, will, we will come back to that later on at that point. Yeah, and he does have access to heat, UV, and that, and that's what he's choosing to sit under right now. Mm. Um, so... Looking at the size of him, he's not massive by any means. He is long. He is about seven feet long. Yeah. Um, but in comparison to some of the diamonds that I've seen out there, he's not that big. But you look at something like Universal Rock, and other than the expense and the fact that it's extremely hard to get now, the ledges on it are not that big. Yeah, they're not very deep. No. And... He, in his old enclosure, which was a converted fish tank, would try and sit up on the little ledge mm. and he was falling off that. And that ledge would be about the same as the depth of the sort of ledges and ridges on a Universal Rock background. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Universal Rock. It looks fantastic. There are aspects of it that I don't like and that I use that to design my own stuff sort of around the things that I don't like. Yep. But everyone has their preferences. Like I've seen some amazing enclosures done with Universal Rock. Mm -hmm. But for me, the functionality is the most important thing. And that's why I ask what animal is going into the enclosure. Yep. Looks like it doesn't have to look natural, but... I remember when I started, I was told you can't do a big enclosure because, one, you're not going to be able to heat it, and, two, like, it's just wasted space. The animal can't use it that much. Even if you put branches, like, it's not, not realistic to do it. Now, keep in mind I was using standard party globes to heat enclosures, so I wouldn't want to try and heat this massive enclosure next to me with party globes. <laughs> you would need a lot. <laughs> Thankfully, we've progressed a little bit from that stage. <laughs> people don't seem to realise that. I still see people putting like 200-watt ceramics, like ceramic heater meters in small enclosures. Like I've seen them put in things as small as a 4 by 2 by 2 and yep. then they throw, they go to Bunnings and buy some mulch and throw it straight from the bag into the enclosure and essentially make a sauna and wonder why their animal doesn't do so well. 
yeah, that's a recipe for disaster very quickly. <laughs> now, to anyone listening, you do not need something that powerful. This entire enclosure is heated. It has a Jungle Dawn full-spectrum plant grow light because it is live planted and bioactive. It has a Shade Dweller UVB and it has a single 100-watt deep heat projector, which is mm-hmm. different from the ceramic heat emitter. Yes, they do two very different things. Yes. Uh, for a start, the spectrums that it gives out are much more usable for the animal. There's loads and loads of information out there. There's a few companies that do it. I like the Ecotech ones because they go right up to 100 watt. But this enclosure sits, the top shelf sits at about 35. At one end, the cool end sits at 30. The next level down sits in the high 20s. And the bottom level, which is where all the plants are, sits sort of mid 20s, about 23, 24. I also don't give heat at night. My heat turns off at eight o'clock. I then have LEDs to simulate at sunset. And then at about nine o'clock, it all turns off. And him in particular, he, even with the option of sitting at 35, which is what you're told uh, in most care guides and at most pet shops, he more often than not will sit in a range of about 30. Mm. Yep. Which is one of the benefits of having an enclosure this big because they can pick what they want. Uh, It goes goes back to that choice element. Yeah, he can cryptic bask, he can get UV without heat, he can get UV with heat, he can get heat without UV. And like we said before, he's now sitting in the full spectrum lighting, which I have heard of other people saying that bears do that as well. So, And that's something that not many people put in their enclosures. Um, each snake is also an individual. Like I've got... Some that don't want to spend any time on the ground. I've got others that will spend heaps of time on the ground. Um, so I think that's a, another important thing. We can't dictate what we think that the animal needs or wants. Yep. All we can do is provide as much option as we can. Let them figure it out. And, and yeah, and let them sort of decide what they want. The other thing I tell people is being a keeper is you're a problem solver. And I try and problem solve even when there's not a problem. I try and figure out why the animal is doing what it's doing. Like right now, I have no idea why it's sitting in the full spectrum other than it's a spectrum of light that he wouldn't otherwise get if that wasn't in there. Um, But for example, my black and gold striped jungle at one point was sitting down at ground level in a spot that didn't have very much heat. And I was really concerned. I was like, oh, she could get a respiratory infection, this, that, and the other. And I pulled it all apart and I got her out of there and it turned out she was in shed. She was sitting down there because it was cool and damp and she was hydrating so she could get a good shed and she smashed out a perfect shed. So that to me was like, okay, see, I thought, you, you can't spend time down there because you're going to get sick. But she knew best because she knew what she needed 
in order to do it with shit. And I think that's extremely important. It's important to learn those things mm. so you can understand why your animal is doing something. And I think that's something that everyone wants to oh, I, I know what, what the answer to this problem is. But not enough people are asking why. They're just parroting what they've heard someone else say. And it is the beauty and curse of Facebook because there's so much information out there. And I'm sorry, guys, most of it's incorrect. Mm. Um, The people that have the experience are so sick of arguing with keyboard warriors that they do not want to help anymore, which is really tragic because back to Russell Grant, how is anyone going to get educated if the people Mm. like him aren't giving out the information anymore? Now, when I started, Facebook wasn't a thing and we could call him on the phone and he would give us advice. Yeah. But now it's, I'll post on a Facebook group and get 700 different opinions of which 99% of them are incorrect or Mm. aren't asking the correct questions. I've seen people advised to not even supply water to their animals. (laughs) No, just give it a drink when you think that it needs a drink. It's like, well, hang on, what if it needs to soak? Yeah, it just just, makes you wonder sometimes, doesn't it? (laughs) You've just eliminated any humidity within the environment. You've increased the chance of dehydration. If your animal gets mites, it's going to dehydrate so quickly and not be able to rehydrate that it will probably die. Not to mention that if you look at the Animal Welfare Act, you are required when keeping an animal to supply clean drinking water and shelter. So things like that, and I think it's because there is no consequence. They can just say it and... If the other person's animal dies, oh, well, it's not my animal. Yeah. And it, it's pretty tragic. It's, it really sucks to see the experienced people not feeling comfortable enough anymore to give out advice because they just get stomped down by people that don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I um, think it's that um, I've noticed as well with a lot of my dealings with some of those guys that are more quiet on social media. I think it's that they are quiet because they don't want to deal with the hassle. But if you directly contact somebody, they are more than happy to help you. Yeah. And I there think- are a few groups that will recommend, hey, private message so-and-so and, and have a chat to them. They'll be able to help. I've helped several people. Um, animals not eating, incorrect housing, especially people that get blasted. I've got a soft spot for an underdog and... Unfortunately, the information, it's not just Facebook pages. Bad information is being given out by pet shops. It's being given out by breeders. I've seen animals go out with one or two feeds in them. They're still like that really shiny, out-of-the-egg, neonate look, and they've been sold to someone as a first name. And then that person can't work out why their snake won't eat. Um, so I tell people if I'm in a position to help, I will say, hey, if you want some help, private message me. I'm more than happy to help. And I have had 
amazing response to that. I've had really gracious people that have said to me outright that they were scared to post in their groups because they thought they were going to get their heads ripped off. And the reality is that fear is a real fear because there are bullies in those groups. There are people that, oh, why would you keep like that? And some of the things I've seen are horrific. The way that people have been told to keep these animals, Mm. you wouldn't even keep a hermit crab like that. And, like, those small plastic, like, sea monkeys aquariums Mm. with the colored plastic top on it, with a lamp over the top. And that's how a pet shop told them to set up their baby snake. Yep. Now, for, for a start, a note, note like, to self, note to self, folks, uh, I can tell you from personal experience that plastic and heat doesn't make a good, ma- uh, good mix. No, not at all. Um, there's no heat gradient there. Luckily, they were told to keep the snake at 26 degrees, which... Normally that wouldn't be a lucky thing, but if they had have had a 35 degree tiny little plastic box with a snake in it, I think she would have ended up with a dead snake. Yep. Now I know most of the people at these shops are just kids on minimum wage that think it's going to be a dream to work at a pet shop. It's not. <laughs> uh, pet shops suck. My wife worked in pet shops for many years and now she's a vet nurse and it's not all playing with kittens and and patting puppies. So don't get into that industry thinking that it is. Um, But, yeah, it's just the amount of misinformation out there is is pretty horrific and Mm. I've got a massive tangent from the backgrounds. but (laughs) That's all right. And one thing that that Dane and I do always say is that we don't shy away from any topics here, so it's good it's always good to get those sorts of bits and pieces out there. You know, um, I think people do need to hear, although it may be on the nose for some people do need to hear about these sorts of things and what's going on, you know, and, and um, I suppose ways around getting your head chopped off on a Facebook group as well. Feel free to message. Like if you notice people that are seem to know what they're talking about to at least some, uh, you know, a, a valuable degree, if you've got a concern, feel free to message them. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to help in some way, shape or form. If, yeah, if you're not comfortable with making a public scene about it all. If, if you've got questions and you've been holding off on a group, feel free to private message me. I'll see it eventually when it pops up with so-and-so wants to send you a message. But like, I'm, I'm more than happy to help. I think it's important that people like myself and yourself carry that gauntlet of educators because the Facebook groups aren't cutting it. Yeah. And the more people hide from it, it's the animals that suffer at the end of the day. Like, sure, it, mm. people suffer as well when their animals don't survive, but, like, people shouldn't be scared to ask for help no matter what the situation like it doesn't matter if it's animals or anything else in life. Like bullying's not on. Yeah. Like I was a bullied kid growing up, and it sucks. And it's stupid to see it happening. Like we're in these groups because we all love the same thing, and yet mm. more often than not, you just see people wanting to tear each other down. Yeah, which seems wrong. So from that. So I started, I was told you can't do big enclosures, they're not functional, this, that, and the other. Technology has come far enough that they are. Yeah. 
but you have to make them that way. If you have a six foot tall enclosure, <clears throat> the you have to make that a usable space. Mm. And for me, with a seven foot long snake that can't perch on something that's four inches wide, I was like, well, how am I going to do that? I'm going to make it myself. I'm going to make the ledges big enough that he can sit on comfortably. He can move around. And that is sort of where it started was I focus on making the space as functional as possible and creating as many opportunities for different microhabitats and different options for the animal as possible. So if they want to be up high, they can get up high. If they want to be down underneath a rock, they can get underneath a rock. Um, and for me, that has sort of been the key to success. That's the most important thing to me. I started off with wanting to use reference photos uh, to match what the enclosure looks like to their natural habitat. The problem that I ran into was some people love that and other people like, I have a Woma python and I want a jungle enclosure. Right. <laughs> so That's an interesting predicament. To, <laughs> so for me, I've got to put my pride aside as a business owner and go, okay, I can still make something that looks like a jungle that suits the needs of a woman. Mm. Like there's no reason I can't do that. I suppose in the end of the day, the whether the background is orange or brown or grey, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference to the animal. It's more just something for it to sit on, I suppose. Exactly. So I focus on functionality as far as basking, hiding, shedding, different textures and enrichment. Um the other reason I ask for what kind of animal it is is because I supply hardscapes. So I supply branches, I supply rocks and different things like that. Now, there's no point in me supplying a seven-foot-long snake with a twig. <laughs> like, yeah, not that's not going to end well. <laughs> or a bearded dragon with something that's too small for it to climb. Yeah. Um, so that's the first step. The second step comes down to design. So whether the client has any requests, like I said, I've had bearded dragons and warmer pythons and people want it to look like a jungle. I've got a current one in the works that he wanted a skull incorporated. So I'm going to make it look like an Indiana Jones temple with like big blocks and maybe some rope hanging down for the snake to climb on and a skull embedded into the wall and stuff. Yeah. Um, really the design is pretty fluid I do like to go I use iNaturalist to see animals behaving differently as well like you think of an olive python and you're like okay well it's a desert species that hangs out in rocks but I've had people come to me and go oh I want an enclosure for my olive python, but I've been told there's no point going tall because it won't climb. And then do you go go to Google and show them the photo of the, um, what is it, the olive that's halfway through eating a rock wallaby halfway down a ledge somewhere in the Kimberley? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's my first go-to. <laughs> <laughs> halfway up an enormous cliff 
that would be sketchy as you climb with a rock wallaby hanging out of its mouth. <laughs> you will find a lot of photos of them underwater because they will so hide underwater, wait for wallabies to come and get a drink and grab them by the face. Um, there's a photo of one in a tropical forest on a log that's going over a creek. like, And then I've made several. I made one for a young olive python that was a four by four. Yep. That snake spends more time off the ground than it does not. Yep. Um, we did another one that was a four by six and the client was very stressed out because a certain pet shop kept on telling him that he was wasting his money, that the snake wouldn't leave the ground. And it took him all of five minutes after drop off and putting his snake in there to send this photo of it on the top shelf. But people are like, okay, it's a, it's a massive snake. I'll put it in a six foot enclosure. So six by two by two, it won't climb. Of course it's not going to climb. It's got nowhere to climb to. Mm. Like it's two foot tall. By the time you put the light cages in, it's a foot. <laughs> like, Where's that going to climb? <laughs> Like the animal's not going to climb if it's got nowhere to climb to. And I suppose in the same token, um, it's, I suppose the question then is what is it going to climb as well? You know, generally speaking, I know for myself included, some of my enclosures at the moment are, I would say not quite where I want them to be. Um, and the issue is that they are that two foot tall. And, you know, you can only put a branch at such an angle that only gives it so much climbing space. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like you just said, like, what are they going to climb? For Darwins in particular, I make sure that there's nice big ledges for them to sit on because I know I've got two of them and I've had one of them for 24 years. I know their behaviour. I know that that's what they want. However, my jungles love to be, even on straight upright branches, mm. they'll be coiled around and right wedged against the roof of the enclosure of a four-foot-tall enclosure. Um, or they'll be draped over a branch. So I think it's important to sort of give them that opportunity to pick what they want. If you buy a, a four-foot or a six-foot tall enclosure and the snake doesn't climb, sell it and get a two-foot. The like, snake will tell you what it wants in the end of the day. But I guarantee that nine times out of ten, that snake's going to climb given the opportunity. Mm. Yeah. The problem is people are going, they've never given the opportunity and then they're trying to tell people what the snake will and won't do. Yeah. So I think that's that's a, a big problem. Um, I suppose of- that, that might also come down to it. I think there's a bit of a disconnect currently with what a what, what happens in the wild versus what happens in captivity. Um when you've got a a wild snake that can do whatever it wants, wherever it wants, whenever it wants, it's going to show you a lot more than what something that's in a box is going to. But you can use that wild animal to be your basis for what you need to offer for that one that's in a box and how you can improve that box. What the animal's capable of. Hmm, exactly. It doesn't necessarily tell you what your animal will do, but it tells you what your animal can do. Yeah. And again, who are we to dictate 
like we're very privileged to even have these animals in captivity. Mm. Who are we to dictate? No, you only need four foot of space by two foot of space. Mm. And that's that, that's all you need. So I can turn around to you, yeah, I'll stick you in a closet and throw you a pack of Doritos once a week and that's all you need. Don't worry about it. You'll be pretty fucking miserable mm. though, won't you? And I suppose they're very that I've always wondered, they're very arbitrary like points. It it makes me wonder, you know, who decided that that four foot by two foot by two foot was like your standard enclosure size, dare I say. You know, who who came up with that figure? Where did that come from? Someone 30 years ago that had to provide heat with party globes. I think those sizes that are the recommended or the minimum, they're outdated by about 20 years. Yeah. Because back then, if you had an enclosure the size of mine, your snake probably would get an RS, a respiratory infection and die because you would need about 15 party globes to provide significant heat. Yeah. Like I had a three-foot enclosure and we had three in there. And that was just enough to get it up to sort of 30 degrees. Now, the other thing is ambient versus gradient temperature, mm. um, which is goes to the backgrounds as well. I provide shelving at different heights to provide more basking options. So the snake doesn't want to sit in 35 degrees. It can still find something that's 30 degrees rather than it's 35 up here at three and a half feet off the ground, but it's 20 degrees on the ground. And that's your two options. Yeah. I want to provide four, five, six options. Yeah. The more options I can provide, the better. Unfortunately, you are limited by what space you're working with. Mm. Um, But we are encouraging people to go with taller enclosures. We're selling more and more three-foot tall enclosures. And that doesn't sound like a heap more space. But it is. It's a lot more space. Yeah. Um, things like carpet pythons in particular, I don't recommend anything smaller than a four by four for an adult. Yeah. Um, just because after keeping them in taller enclosures and seeing how more often than not they want to be up as high as possible, after seeing that, I feel bad keeping them with less. Yeah. Um, but in saying that, I don't have a huge, a huge collection. I've got four snakes. Yeah. Um, and people are like, well, how can I keep a hundred snakes that I've got in a rack system if I have to provide a hundred four by four enclosures? So maybe this, don't this, have a hundred snakes in the first place. This, I suppose. this is going to sound really, really harsh. And sorry, not sorry. <laughs> probably shouldn't have that many snakes if you can't provide the care and what that animal deserves it's even four by four is less than what the animal deserves in reality like if i could give an entire shed of space to every single animal i would um but we are limited unfortunately but i i find it 
my responsibility to provide as much as I physically can. Yeah. And if that means burning less animals, then so be it. Yeah. Because I'd love to have more animals. I'd love to have rough scales and green trees and, and all the rest of it. But the um, significant amount of space that a five by six by three takes up, which is what I would want to keep them in, limits me. And I go, okay, I'll hold off until I can provide that. Yeah. Until I buy a house with a massive machinery shed that I can move into a reptile room or, <laughs> or something like that. Like you don't have to have these animals at the end of the day. We want to have them, we love to have them, but we don't have to have them. And we the animals shouldn't be sacrificing for our wants. Yeah. I think um, um one one point that you did make there about uh the the whole um, thermoregulation side of things and how that incorporates into the backgrounds. For those that aren't aware and that have seen my uh, Central Australia themed enclosure, Damien and I did do a lot of work on that with a few others as well, Dane included. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things that we really clicked on with that setup was uh, incorporating both basking opportunities, but also uh, one idea that we came up with was having a heated hide box as well. So you can have that. What I've found with the, the, the Centralian carpets that are in there is that if they are in shed, nine times out of 10, they're going to be in that hide box that's heated instead of being basking up, up under a UV light or under a heat lamp. They're going to be hiding away, which makes sense. They, they feel vulnerable. That makes sense. To what we were saying before of asking the question why, and I think it's the most important thing to do. Why are they doing that? because they don't feel safe. Yeah. Like, and don't, don't jump on Facebook pages and go, oh, this is, this animal does this because of this rah, rah, rah. Look at your collection. If you know that that's great and someone's asking that, fair enough, like, if they want that advice, but, like, that doesn't mean you know everything. Mm-hmm. Look at your collection and work out what the next thing to work out is. Like, yeah. Okay, they, they don't feel safe for that. A big one is why is your animal not eating? Well, there can be 15 different reasons why, and I don't want to go into that right now. You want to find that out, go read my uh, feeding guide when I release it. You'll have to like my Facebook page so you can see when we do. Um, but not enough people are asking why. Mm. And whether it be hiding the shed, whether it be... Why can't we cohab animals? Why is it so frowned upon to cohab animals? Well, one of the things that we discussed with your build was that you were cohabbing and I sort of blindsided you a bit and said to you, are you cohabbing? And I could tell you were being pretty tentative because you weren't sure how I was going to react. And I'm not afraid of a controversial topic i i really don't care i'm a punk rock kid from the 80s and 90s and if you don't like me oh well but i asked you that because i take that into account as well yeah you've got a big enclosure now why do people run into issues with cohabbing they run into issues with cohabbing because they don't provide options for the animals Hmm. or they provide too fewer options for the animals. If you're forcing three animals to bask in one spot 
and they get pissed off with each other, you're going to be in trouble. Yep. <laughs> if those animals want to get away from each other, they need to be able to do that. Therefore, we need more hides. So already we need multiple basking spots and we need multiple hides. And one of the things that I discussed with you during that build was how many animals is it? Because I want to give them at least one choice each. Yeah. If they don't, all three of them don't want to be anywhere near each other, none of them should have to go, oh, well, I guess I'm not getting any heat today. Yeah. That's not fair on the animal. And you hear about people with their females, they'll be breeding the female eats the male. There's a few things that go into that. You do just get some that will just do that. And um, species dependent too, I think. Yeah, it's species dependent. Uh, Brian Barshek has one that he has named Carol Baskin because she ate it. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of it is you're breeding in a small tub. Yeah. And once the animal, and if you give a male the opportunity to do so, they'll go in, they'll breed, and once the job's done, that male gets the fuck out of dodge. <laughs> He's running for the clappers. <laughs> he doesn't want to be there. Now, if they're in a dog, he can't get away. And if that female then gets agitated and goes, I want you gone and I want you gone now, and he can't, Good then that's when you start running into issues. Mm. So it was important for me with your trio to give those options because I don't want to tell you that you can't cohab, mm. but I don't want you to run into any issues. I'm yeah. not just going to go, okay, well, stick them in this and if you have issues, it's your fault. Yeah. I wanted to, and I think I've sort of been thinking on and listened to a fair few podcasts where uh, they sort of talked about it and I'd learnt and had gone, okay, well, what could we do different? And one of the main things was that you need to provide those options. You need to provide space for them to get away from each other if they want to. You need to not force them into sharing hides, force them into sharing basking. You have to give them a way to do that. So, again with your standard background or a standard enclosure, you can't provide that easily. Mm. You can stick several hides in, but what if one is on the cold side, one's on the hot side, and they both want the hot side? Yeah. And you've got conflict. It's all of these little things that are important to me when I design a setup. It's not so much how it looks. Like, I... I'm a very visual person. I've yep. been artistic my entire life and that is important to me. But the most important thing to me is that it's functional and it's functional for the use of what it's intended for. So it's not necessarily the keeper. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as bad as it sounds, I don't really care about the keeper like obviously yeah. i want to create a product that the keeper likes but it is more important to me to create a product that the animal can use and i i don't say that i build backgrounds i say that i create habitats yeah because a background is 
visual and it can be functional or it might not be functional. I can make a background out of a completely flat piece of foam that looks great but doesn't do anything. But I want to create a habitat that's usable. Yeah. Um, so that, that sort of covers the, the design part of it. I design things around functionality over looks. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then once you've figured out your, your design process, you spoke about using the tile pointing versus the grout as well. What's the, what's the next step from there, I suppose? Is it, I suppose yeah, it's basically so, installation and then a few other bits yeah, and pieces? The tools that I use are XPS foam. Like I said, sometimes I will use um, expanding foam yeah. in the right circumstances. I have used I've top-plated shelves for monitor enclosures with things like cement. Yep. So they can't climb through, like they can't claw through them when they're pulling themselves up on them. And the other reason is it will absorb the heat. So again, functionality. These animals, people like, oh well, they bask on rocks, and that's so we just give them belly heat, they'll be fine. But again, you're not giving them an option. Yeah. So I would rather create, I would mimic stone and then put a radiant heater above it so yep. the stone soaks up the heat and then they can get both. They can choose. They can be out when that's on or when that turns off on a timer, they can come out and sit on that shelf. Yeah. Um, so functionality and durability with that sort of thing, lining things with stone or cement. Um, so, yeah, I, I start with XPS foam. I then build the structure and design features like shelves, hides, um, whether it be an arboreal hide or a removable ground level hide. I've made hides for things like womers and stuff where the entrance is actually buried by sand so they can use that natural digging and, and get down underneath things. Uh, the advantage to making stone out of foam is that it is not so heavy that if something was to go wrong, it's going to crush and injure your animal. Yeah. Um, but the downsides to it is that it doesn't absorb heat the same as what stone would. Yeah. Um, so I use tile pointing. I go three to four coats. Um, back to painting models and stuff with Warhammer, I prefer thinner coats and more of them because I find that you maintain more detail that way. I then go through and use acrylic paint. Um, you can get acrylic spray paints as well, but make sure they're acrylic because if you use an oil base, you run into issues. Um, you can't use spray paint on bare foam. It'll melt it. Right, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, learned that. I was right. going to say, it sounds like a trial and error situation. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people will say that you can do what you see for dart frog enclosures and just smear it with silicon and smash dirt into it and, and do it that way. The difference between a dart frog enclosure and a reptile enclosure is the heat. And again, learning the hard way, expanding foam is extremely flammable. Um, oh no <laughs> a lot of people who unfortunately end up with house fires 
And when you look at the pictures, you often see enclosures with ex bare expanding foam. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know using your heat globes how hot it would have to get before it would combust, but I have seen people put crazy, crazy wattage globes in enclosures. Mm. Um, so for me, I go for XPS over expanding foam for those several reasons. One, more durable with clawed animals. Um, two, the flammability. Um, yeah, and I think because there's so much on YouTube with different ways of doing it, but a lot of it's from the from Europe, uh, from the dark frog communities, from the UK. And although they look great under a hot globe, I don't trust that it won't catch fire. Yeah. Um, expanding foam also gets very soft when it's heated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we go XPS foam unless otherwise I need to maybe fill some gaps or create some sort of structure, maybe like an elevated planter or or something like that. Yeah. Then I will lean on expanding foam, but I'll be very careful with how I coat it and where it's located in the enclosure. I think the other thing too is that um, the, the the foam sheets that you use are so much easier to use than the foam is the expanding foam. That expanding foam is just a pain to use. Yeah, it's it's very messy. It is a pain. You end up with air bubbles and and all sorts of things like that. Um, the reason I like the XPS foam sheets. Um, over something like universal rock now the way universal rock do it is they do use an expanding foam compound but it's a true part that they put through a sprayer and they spray it onto a silicon mold uh, with the pigments and stuff already added and then they'll peel it out of that mold now what that creates is a lot of hollows behind and then you have to use expanding foam to glue it into place to fill those holes XPS foam sheets are perfectly flat yeah. on the back. So I can build a background external. I don't have to have the client's enclosure in front of me to do it. I just have to have accurate measurements. Now, emphasis on accurate because I've run into that before where they'll give me some measurements and they're not quite right and things don't quite fit. Yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder who did that. I'm not me. <laughs> was, was, that, was that me? That might have been me once. <laughs> Maybe it was me. But no, you're not the only one. It happens all the time. It, it's things that people don't take into account, like material thicknesses or the hinge aspects on doors or the depth of their substrate dam or just things like that. Um, there's lots and lots of little things that, that come into play and it's my job to learn and work out how to get around those things. Um, so yeah, so we build a structure out of XPS foam. I use a marine grade glue, which is the same compound, but harder as expanding foam. So it does expand. It's called, what is it called? Gorilla Glue do one and there's another one called Tech, Tech Group. Um, by sticker um, I find that really really strong I will glue it 
glue the background into place either using that or I will use the expanding uh, foam that they use on foam for doing render, render yeah. jobs on houses. I figure if it's good enough to hold up a, a render wall, then it's good enough to hold up a, a fake rock wall in a reptile enclosure. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the other jobs that I did sort of coming up to the start of my business. I was actually a labourer for a renderer and yeah. um, got to learn all sorts of little tricks like that. Um, so, yeah, we do the XPS phone, then we do tile pointing, then acrylic paints, um, thin your paints down and create weathering. One thing you will find with the tile pointing is that it is water resistant. So it takes a lot for the paint to really take. And then it's literally just being as creative as you want to be. Doing things like uh, ridges where a branch can lodge into the wall and be held in place so you can wedge it up on an angle or... Um, making an elevated height, making a, a shelf with a removable section that, that can create a hide. Um, there are a few downsides to doing them external. You do get gaps. Um, so if I do sort of a shelf that wraps around the sidewall a bit, then I can't make it tight to that sidewall because when I put that background in and the tile pointing sets like cement basically it's like a flexible cement um i will scratch the living shit out of the inside of that enclosure putting it in so i have to leave a five mil gap um we have had clients complain about that unfortunately there's no other way that i can do it um you won't get that with expanding foam in my enclosures i just get moss and shove it into that gut and just fill that gut um if you really wanted to, you could put a, some sort of a gut filler and, and paint it. But yeah, yeah, or shove some substrate in, I suppose, as well, depending yeah, on how big the gap is. Yeah. Um, so my personal enclosures, I do three walls. My What I do for clients, uh, unless they ask for three walls, is I just do a back wall because my all of my enclosures are custom built mm. and have vents in places that allow for the three-sided walls. Yeah. Um, the enclosures that we build at Tanks by Congo have vents on the side walls if it's got a background. Yeah. If it doesn't, then we do vents on the back wall. Yeah. Um, but again, they're purpose-built. Yeah. Um, I do refurbish people's enclosures and do backgrounds for store-bought or already made enclosures. Um, yeah. I can build around vents and create covers for vents that still allow ventilation but hide the vent and things like that. Um, but, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. The, the limits are literally as far as your imagination goes. I do have a plan on doing a waterfall build for this big enclosure for my Darwin. Um, but I'm going to do it as a removable piece rather than a yep. built-in piece. And the reason that I want to do that, other than the fact that it will look really cool, 
is I have a theory in the in the chameleon world, they're like chameleons won't drink unless the water's running. Mm. Now people are always running into issues with carp pythons in particular with bad sheds. Yeah. Dehydration, oh well, inject your prey with water. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because when you freeze prey, you actually lose water in the defrosting cycle um, and things like that. But the other thing that I've noticed through watching a lot of guys on YouTube that are out in the bush, there's a young kid that I've watched since he was a really, really young kid uh, called Miller Wilson. Mm, he yeah. does all these little camping survival videos and stuff, but he's a reptile nut and an animal nut in, in general. And he'll find carpet pythons out in the wild and various other snakes. And the one thing you always find is that they're next to a river. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, and we already know that fresh water results in your snake drinking more often like i know of people that will change their water on probably more than a weekly basis because it will ensure that the animal keeps drinking to me i almost wonder if running water would promote that yeah obviously you will have to take into account things like the bacteria build up in the pump and in filters and whatnot and make sure that you're doing water changes and stuff. But I would be curious to see if running water plays a role in the hydration of the reptiles. And that's one of the reasons that I want to do it because if it works for things like chameleons, and obviously that's because they're Jew drinkers, but so would be the dragons and people want to keep them at 0% humidity as well, which to me doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but it's an, a natural history thing. Like there's got to be a reason that they're hanging out in that location. And I don't know if that's because that's where the prey is or if that's because that's where they want to drink from. Yeah. Um, but I'm asking that question why, and I'd be interested right. to find out why. That's it. Um, and for those who are budding researchers, there you go. There's another topic that you can add to the list. <laughs> yeah, this. It's endless. It really, really is. It's, it's endless on how many times you can ask why. Yeah. And how deep you want to go. But I think half the fun of keeping is learning. It, yep. it is the research side of things. It's it's learning as much as you can. Like, to me, I'm not a very competitive person. Like I've got friends all over Australia that build backgrounds and enclosures. And to me, I don't see them as competition, and I'm not saying that in a cocky way. I would rather be friends with them and learn from each other and talk about things that we've run into and brainstorm ways to get around it. There's enough work to go around. There's no need to be nasty and competitive to each other. Um, Reptiles are getting more and more and more common and accepted i guess within the the pet world yeah um and yeah like i suppose the the next step to go to would be like what you were saying before we're seeing more and more schools with reptile rooms 
Lulidale High School is in the development stages of building a zoological facility, which is fantastic because with the amount of environmental damage that's out there and forests getting destroyed and, and all the rest of it, it's important that we have an appreciation for it. And if that starts in a reptile room in a school, then that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Like um, as part of my, I suppose, my day job is um, part of that is going into the classroom um, with certain animals and doing talks related to whatever the students are doing in their curriculums as well. But having that that interaction, um, you really notice very quickly that kids are clocked on to these are these are really awesome animals and that there are things that we need to do and things that we can do to help protect them, I suppose. Um, and it's really good to yeah. see that there's more of that happening as well. I don't know how deep they're going with the educational side of it, but at least it's a starting point. And I'm mm. hoping if it isn't already that it will eventually be. Yeah, these animals are awesome. And unless we take precautions to keep them alive they're only going to be in captivity yeah and it's great to see more and more people getting into the photography side of things and going out herping and and that becoming more and more common i know a lot of people that don't even keep anymore they started as keepers now they'd rather see them in the wild and that's super duper important because if we don't have a reason then people will just sweep it under the rug and if the reason is that a teacher's jamming it down a kid's throat, so he's going to, um, I want to go to the Northern Territory, I want to keep a snake, I want to keep a bearded dragon, and making them care, then there's no hope at all. Yeah. That's it. I suppose um, the, the, now that we've, we've, we've spoken about the, the process to the backgrounds, we've gotten to the installation. Now, you've mentioned... You talked briefly about the hardscape side of things. Do you want to elaborate a bit on that and how you go about picking pieces for certain setups and that sort of thing as well? Okay, so there's a lot of things that go into play, um, whether you want to keep bioactive, what species you're keeping, what humidity levels can be permitted. Um, I suppose all of my setups are bioactive. And I suppose one thing that I want to cover really quick is when I first started looking into bioactive, I was told that you can't do it with carpet pythons because they can't handle humidity. Mm. Now, there is a big difference between cold and wet and humid. Yeah. Majority of these animals that we keep come from the Northern Territory or the top end of Queensland, which is really, really humid. Darwin gets so humid that the locals move out during the wet season <laughs> because they say that it will drive you insane. There's a reason that the Aboriginals were nomads. They moved from place to place because they knew at certain times of year places weren't suitable to live. Now, to say an animal from Queensland can't handle humidity doesn't make sense. 
So right back to where we started, why are people running into issues with humidity? The reason that I see is, one, the enclosure is too small and the animal can't escape the humidity. Now, all of my enclosures are a minimum of four foot tall. So I can completely spray down any of these enclosures to the point that like, it's like there's been a rainstorm come through. Everything is wet. That animal can choose to not sit in wet. Yep. Now, if that animal can't choose to not sit in wet, that's where I see issues. Because if they're sitting in the cold side in a puddle, then, yes, they're going to get sick. It's not the fact that they can't handle humidity. It's the fact that they can't handle constant wet, cold environments. Now, the animal, if it's cold and dry, can maintain health for a certain period of time before it's going to run into issues. If it's cold and wet, it's going to go downhill very, very quickly. Um, if it's hot and wet, not so many issues. Maybe if they can't escape it or if it's all the time. But like my 4 by 4 I'll spray that down when the heat's on. Um, so I usually do morning and night. So I'll either do just before the heat's about to go off or I'll do it as the heat's coming on. Yeah. Um, I'll spray that down to the glass is fogging up. Uh, but she doesn't have to sit in the wet. She's got plenty of spots that she can get well and well away from the wet. Yeah. And I've never, the only time I ever had a scare with a respiratory infection was when I was worried that she was sitting somewhere that she shouldn't have been. And she was like, you're an idiot. I'm in shade. Go away. (laughs) Your brain, um, your brain always goes to the worst case scenario. That's just the way it's wired. <laughs> I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I was had probably been listening to someone talk about respiratory infections, and I was like, "Oh my god, like she's going to get one. She's sitting in the enclosure, and she hasn't come out in a couple of days, and and this, that, and the other." But she was doing it for a reason. Yeah. Um, the way I pick hardscape. There's two ways that I pick hardscape. There's one, how it looks. Yeah. Um, so I pull things from everything from Dungeons and Dragons terrain to aquascaping to reptile keeping to hiking videos. Yeah. I, I pull things from all different places to come up with how I set things up. Um, but at all times, it's a balance between functionality and how it looks. Yeah. I want it to look good. I'm a very, like I said before, I'm a very visual person. How it looks does matter to me, but I want it to be functional at the same time. Yeah. So it's a balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I can set up an entire enclosure, stand back, look at it, hate it and pull it all apart and start again. (laughs) I think we've all we've all been victims of that many times. <laughs> I've done that several times, but the selection of the hardscape pieces is always function first. 
Yeah. Like, there's no point in me having a skinny little stick that I really like the look of if the animal can't use it. Yeah. And same thing with if it's an absolute monster of a piece, but it doesn't serve any functionality, I can't have that as the only thing in there. I can put that in there. That's fine. But I'm going to have to put other pieces in to create the functionality along yeah. with how it looks. Yeah. Um, so all of my stuff is like planted. That is something that is a uphill battle. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been planted alive is a lot harder than <laughs> even with grow lights and, and watering them and whatnot. Um, the big guy squashes some of his plants, but his setup is big enough that it, and the, that I can put huge plants in. Yeah. So it's not too much of that. I think more often than not, it's a watering issue. Uh, yeah. It's either not enough or too much water. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, bioactive is doable. You just have to have the correct style of setup. I wouldn't do it in a four by two. Yeah. Um, you can't keep it wet enough to keep things alive and give the option for the animal to get out of that. Mm. Um, but in saying that, I don't keep in four by twos anymore. Mm. Yeah. And being bioactive doesn't make it better or worse. You can have a fantastic bioactive setup or you can have a bioactive setup that's terrible for the animal. But that, that's not – people seem to use it as like an elite badge. It's like, oh, well, I keep bioactive, so I'm, I'm a more advanced keeper. That's a load of shit. Um, that's not true at all. I keep bioactive because it adds an extra element and rather than buying more animals, I would – prefer to advance the way that I'm keeping them. I get my fix of advancement through that rather than buying more. Yeah. Um, and it's also choosing, like, I like to travel and stuff. So I've got snakes. Like, we traveled three months and my big guy, we fed him like a week before we went, made sure he wasn't going to regurge and off we went for three months and he didn't get a feed for three months. You can't do that mm. with a bearded dragon or an aki or or geckos or something mm. like that. And there are plenty of species that I love the look of and would love to keep, but it's not practical for me. And it's knowing your limitations yeah. and abiding by those. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've got live planted. You can use fake plants. I use loose substrate and everything. I know some people prefer to keep on paper towel or whatever. All power to you. I don't like it. Um, I, I understand it from the aspect of people want to know what's going on and they want to know that there's no bugs or, or mites or anything like that, and that's fair enough. I don't necessarily think that sterile is an elite way of keeping mm. any more than keeping on loose substrate or bioactive or semi-naturalistic or anything else like one thing i do find with a loose substrate is it is easier to provide a humidity level that allows the animal to shed better yeah um 
seen a lot of people that keep on paper towel and newspaper and yeah, bad shed central. And mm. I think that's an, another thing like people are like, oh, well, you have to hydrate the animal. It's like, well, that's not the only way to increase hydration. Uh, one second. Time has just uh, went off. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's, there's lots and lots of different sort of aspects to it. Hardscape, functionality first, mm. then how it looks. Yeah. Um, which is my approach to everything. Like, if I have to build an enclosure that a client wants that I don't like the look of, I just focus on making it functional. Yeah. And I think um, that that comes back to the main, I suppose the main themes of the talk has been all about that that functionality and the the why element, whether it's why the, the keeper is doing what they're doing or why the animal is doing what they're doing. Um, I suppose that formulates the basis for how you go about what it is that you're trying to create, I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that that's the core of, of every single build is functionality. I want to, I'd love to get people to keep in bigger enclosures, not because it makes me money, which it does to a degree, but it's not about that. It's about providing the space for the animal to be itself. Yep. I go stir crazy if I stay inside too long. Um, that's because I was raised outdoors or if it's just me embracing what is natural to humans in general. Yep. But I think a lot of mental health issues stem from too much time inside, too much time in front of screens, not enough time in the sun. We already know through, well, I learned it through reptile lighting, that UVA, which cannot be supplemented in any other way than the sun or from lights, plays a huge part in the chemical function of our brains. And without it, you do end up with depression. That's why people get seasonal depression during winter. Um, so if I feel that effect, then... What's going on in the animal next year? Yeah, exactly. But they're not able to express it in a way that we see. Yeah. So just because you can keep something alive, you see it all the time. Oh, yeah, eats, sheds, shits, it's all good. Yeah, I could, it'll breed in a tub. It must be fine. Just because it wants to survive doesn't mean that it's fine. Yeah. Like, like I said before, we can survive in a prison cell. Doesn't mean that you're fine. Surviving versus thriving. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I want to create habitats that they can thrive in. I feed my guys. I don't feed on a schedule. Yep. If my animals aren't out hunting, waiting in ambush positions at night, and I check them early morning, I'm up very, very early every morning, as we discussed before we went on here. I get up between four and five o'clock in the morning and I'm out the door by six and I check all of my animals every morning and I have a, a lot of animals. I've got two cats, a dog, a horse. I've got four snakes <laughs> and that's downsized compared to what it was. Um, 
But I check all of the snakes in the morning, make sure all their heat's on. I use Inkbird thermostats because I can check it on my phone and I can make sure that they're getting heated, which I have had issues with a couple of times. My enclosures have switches on the back and when you push them against the wall, sometimes uh, those switches yeah. get... Switches off, yep. Yeah. So keep an eye on that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you've just moved everything around. <laughs> yeah, the uh, thermostat makes that really easy because I can see how it's trending. I can see how long it's been off for. And if it's been off for a while, then I might crank that heat up a bit, give them a hot day yeah, and um, sort of recharge those batteries. But, yeah, there's sort of endless ways that you can advance your keeping with out buying more animals. Yeah. I think too many people uh, six months in and have started with one and, and then six months later have four. So like, what are you going to do with four seven-foot-long snakes? Yeah. Because majority of the time, like I said earlier, they're coastals. Mm. And the next most common I see are Darwin's because of the Albinos. Everyone wants an Albino. And... Yeah. Yeah, and, that's, and I suppose it's that whole future planning aspect as well like it's all well and good to have something that's 45 to 60 centimeters long but then that is going to grow <laughs> and then you are going yeah. to need to house it in something bigger <laughs> scrub pythons and olives concern me um seeing them in in pet stores mm. um someone asks me what size enclosure would you recommend for an olive python I know my my question is: Do you have a walk-in wardrobe? <laughs> you got it. You got a spare room by any chance? <laughs> yeah, because these animals get huge. Like, and as much as you can keep them in something like a five by six by three, and that probably would be enough. Do you want to be you, striving for enough? If this is the next question. There. Want to strive for enough? Like. What I would recommend and what is enough is two different things. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think our licensing system here in Victoria could be better. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things that are on the standard license that shouldn't be. Some interesting choices. <laughs> I also think that the advanced license is just a money grab. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. What makes it an advanced license? Do I have to sit a course to get my advanced license? Do I have to prove that I know how to keep a more difficult species that's on an advanced license to get an advanced license? I think the, um, the only requirement really is that you have to be over 18 and that you can pay the money. Yeah. So, I've met loads of people over the age of 18 that don't know two bob worth about anything like to do with reptiles. Like just because I'm over 18 doesn't mean I've done the research required to Yeah, you know, you, 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 yeah, you shouldn't really be able to just uh, put up a bit of money and be able to go, oh, let me just grab a saltwater crocodile and an inland type in real quick and I'll keep those for the rest of my life and happy days. You know, what could possibly go wrong? 
at least in Queensland and New South Wales, like venomous, you have to do a venomous handling course or something like that. And they've like got um, X amount of years before you can upgrade the licenses as well. I think it's they are yeah. yeah they have to have R one species for I think it's three to five years something like that before they can upgrade them to the next. What I don't like about that is that it encourages to keep something you're not interested mm. in. Each in system has to... their downfalls. So I think that's that's a flawed system because just because you know how to keep an angle-headed dragon doesn't mean you know how to keep a boys. Yeah. There are different species that have different requirements or a chameleon gecko or mm. any of those other sort of more difficult, more advanced species. Keeping something lesser doesn't equal education. It equals a little bit of experience, but it doesn't equal education. And I don't know. I think the issue that they run into is that, well, who dictates what's right and what's wrong with so many opinions out there? Um, I think who do you you ask to make those calls? Yeah. Like even zoological facilities have some questionable protocols and and procedures and depending on the facility like even it it doesn't matter who you look at like there's always going to be a a counteractive opinion Mm. yeah so i think human nature in a nutshell (laughs) yeah unfortunately um (laughs) needs to happen is they need to come up with some sort of a course Mm. um even if it's just a basic knowledge course. Or just something that I suppose differentiates the two. Or even um, I read someone, they, they were taking submissions for um, part of the Wildlife Act that wasn't, it's not directly related to private keepers, but is somewhat related. Somebody was suggesting that they introduce like a third licensing classification. So you'd have your basic advanced and then like this specialty i suppose is what you would call it or something along those lines um where you have things that may be endangered for example or may be difficult to keep like your venomous snakes that sort of stuff and your advanced license is purely the stuff that is not for a beginner but isn't like that almost impossible to keep sort of stuff there's there's like an in-between there i suppose i think there's there's also sort of an aspect of I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? There's there's an aspect of what shouldn't shouldn't be on there with the size of the animal as well. Mm. Something like a lace monitor. Something like it scares me that you can go on reptiles classified and find a saltwater crocodile for the same amount that I paid for a Darwin calf python. Um, <laughs> Things like that. It's like in America, I'm not sure. I don't think they do it here. But to buy a husky, you have to prove that it is in correct fencing, that it has an appropriately sized yard, yep. that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. They do to that for dingoes. To get birds of prey and raptors and owls, mm. all of those sort of more advanced species you have to prove that you have an appropriate sized aviary and a business for victoria at least. why can't we do that 
with this. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we've got a saltwater crocodile. Where are you going to keep it? Yeah. I don't think that's too much to ask. That's no more advanced to asking someone, okay, you're behind the wheel of a car and here's a red light. What do you do? Mm. Yeah. Like, here's a speed sign. What does it mean? Yeah. Like, there has to be something there to protect the animals because they're the ones that are going to suffer. They're mm. the ones that going to end up with a 10-foot-long snake jammed into a four-foot-long enclosure. And it's not fair on the animal. Like, sure, they're not always going to stretch out in a straight line, but I've seen people keeping bearded dragons in three-foot enclosures. So that animal can barely turn around. Yep. If that was a three-foot-long by four or five-foot deep enclosure, sure. (laughs) But, like, the animal is almost the length of the enclosure. It's not a snake that can coil back on itself. Yeah. It's an animal that moves around a lot. Monitor lizards are another one. Um, lace monitors are a, a massive one. It's, I find it very difficult with people selling lace monitors because really to keep them properly, you have to have an outdoor area. I must say I do love one thing with the, the lace monitor keeping is that um, you'll have people that get to, they, they grow them up for two years. They get to about 1.2 meters and they go, um, this is the point now where either it goes outside and it becomes a nutcase or I get rid of it for something that's a little bit easier to maintain here. What are my yeah. options? <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what happens. And you end up with monitor species. that are an absolute handful. Scott Iper and, um, Chrissy and all of them, they'll tell you that as soon as you put a monitor outside, it's going to revert back to wild. Yep. Um, I see the same thing with cats. I saw a, a thing the other day. Cats are not, they became domesticated through choice. Cats hang around, hung around with people in the beginning because people had grain and grain created rats and mice and the cats wanted that yeah so the cats decided to hang out with people because the people provided what the cat needed yeah and as soon as you put a cat back into the wild it will go feral and it will survive yeah the same thing would be true i would imagine with a lace monitor we get them down here in victoria where i live we get them locally up got customers that have them on their properties regularly as soon as you put them outside they're known to become sort of a more wild animal Mm. i would imagine if you took away the fences they would just integrate with the system and live perfectly fine in the wild yeah i believe that the only reason that they stay domesticated inside is because we provide what they need. Mm. Unfortunately, I it's that I think for them as well, it's that underlying intelligence too that I think may drive some of that as well. Most of the animals that we keep are extremely intelligent. Mm. Uh, all of my snakes are target trained. Uh, when I started keeping, we were told that barely got any vision all that they see in heat 
and they they run off scent. But since learning more, um, Laurie Torini was uh, someone that got mentioned on a podcast oh. that I looked up and started trying the things that she was preaching, and it works. Every yeah. single one of my snakes will follow a target. Not to the length that hers would, uh, but I haven't done as much work with them as she has. But they will. They'll follow that target and they can see it perfectly fine. That was another thing that sort of opened my eyes. I used to keep with blue party globes. Turns out that uh, snakes and lizards can see the colours blue and red. <laughs> so if you're keeping with blue and red globes, imagine changing every globe in your house to a red globe. Yeah, that's that's going to get annoying very quickly, I would imagine. <laughs> so it's, it's little things like that. And the fact that you don't know isn't the problem. Mm. The fact that you don't want to learn is the problem. Yeah. So don't be that person that doesn't want to learn because the learning side of it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Getting to try new things is super enriching. You don't need to buy a new snake to get that dopamine fix of, oh, it's new, it, it's flash, and then in a couple of months' time, you're over it and you want something else. Yeah. Like, you can renew your keeping experience without buying new animals. Mm. You can be training them. Monitor lizards are a massive one for training. Uh, but you can do it with snakes as well. You can vary up what you're feeding them. You can scent the cages up and, like, my female darling, I will scent the cage up and she will hunt and go along the scent trail and find the prey. And that's how she earns her meal. Yep. Like I said before, I won't feed unless they're out ambushing. Like mm. I want them to act like intelligent animals. I don't yep. want to be popping them on the nose with a frozen rat going, here you go, eat. Like, and I have heard like people say that that's another big reason for obesity in, in snakes is because the only interaction with them that they get is during feeding. Yeah. And that, that's the biggest connection that they get with their animals, which is very, very unfortunate because there's a lot more opportunity to have. Like I get a massive thrill from coming in here before I go to bed and seeing them out exploring or out waiting in ambush. I was like, all right, you're hungry. All right. Give you a week and, and you can have a feed. Uh, but I make them earn it. Like yeah. they would have to earn it in the wild. So why should it just, if you just feed them by smashing it in front of their face every time, then it's no wonder you create a lazy Creature, if you didn't have to walk to the fridge, if you just had someone bringing you food every time you were even thinking, oh, am I hungry? You wouldn't get off your ass and eat, would you? you just <laughs> come you. It, it seems really, really common sense, but people just don't seem to think about it. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to promote more. We need to promote more thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I suppose the, the uh, only other thing left to touch on is we've, we've spoken in little bits and pieces about what your private collection looks like, but uh, give us the rundown. What have you got these days? All right. So I've got my original boy still. So he's 24 years old. 
seven foot long. Yeah, and that's uh, just a, a, a stock standard Darwin carpet. Yeah, so he's just a stock standard wild type Darwin carpet. Yeah. I've got a female albino that's about two years old. Yeah. Uh, she's technically my wife's. <laughs> um, she wanted uh, an albino, so we got one. Yep. <laughs> um, that was off a, a good friend of mine that was downsizing his collection. Uh, then I went to Jurassic Jungle in Bayswater yep. and I saw a striped black and yellow jungle. Yep. And I don't know what it is, but I have a massive, massive weakness for striped <laughs> animals, like striped snakes in particular. Um, and I was like, she's stunning. And I had several friends in the state with stripes and I've been drooling over their collections. And I was like, I want to. So my wife was like, we'll get them. I was like, okay. Yep. All right. <laughs> and Jason addressed Jungle picked her up and she bit him about 15 times in all of three and a half seconds. <laughs> And my wife was like, are you sure you want her? I was like, well, yeah, I already knew the jungles were a bit like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I still want her. Yep. <laughs> now, my wife will not handle it. She'll handle any of the others. Uh, she will not handle the female black and gold. Yeah, um, fair enough. But she is very, very... On edge, she's a very mm. high strung snake. Yeah, um, which it's my job to figure out why and what to do with that. Mm. Yeah, so it's right back to that stage. It's always up to us to ask why. There's no point in going, "Oh, my snake's a dove that doesn't want to eat." Mm. Why doesn't it want to eat? Yeah, does it not feel safe? Is it not hot enough? Is it? There's so many different things. Is it not the right prey item? Mm. Um, there's so many different things that can contribute to the why. Yeah. Um, so it's a constant work in progress with her. Yep. She will try and hunt me from across the cage <laughs> if I'm in Jing Globe or, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but part of it is like jungles are renowned for that. Mm. In some way, I also have a gelatin locality. Uh, Tremaine Lion Jungle. Yeah. And she is the biggest sweetheart. She has never, the only time she ever struck at me was because she thought it was good. Yep. Yep. That's usually how it goes. <laughs> um, and as soon as she realized that it wasn't food, she was fine. Yeah. Uh, which was entirely my fault. Every time I've ever been bitten by a uh, maybe maybe not the black and black and yellow. She's <laughs> me, but all of the others was my fault. My big guy every time I've been bitten by him, my fault. Um, the worst he ever got me was it was a hot day, and I was in a hurry and I dunked a rat in there by its tail, frozen thawed, not live, and he smashed my hand and coiled my wrist. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, well, that's not good. Uh, oh, hey, mum. I've got to hold the end without the teeth while I uh, pry them off my hand. And then I went, I think it was just before my graduation from primary school. 
And I and then I went to primary school with a big bandage all over my hand because I'd been mauled by my <laughs> by my snake. Um, yeah, the gelatin locality. She's an absolute sweetheart. She's the youngest of the the lot. So yeah, yeah. I've got ranging from twenty four to two years to probably just under two years, and the youngest is about. 11 months probably going yep. on a year yep and that's the the full collection like i said i'd love to get more but i restrict myself with the minimum mm. that i want to keep them. Yep. i'm not interested in keeping in tubs if that's how you keep fair enough uh, i've got friends that keep like that i it just doesn't do anything for me. I like to see them about. I like to see them doing their thing. I like to see the natural behavior. And that's what I like to try and promote with the design of my backgrounds. I like to promote that natural behavior, whether it be burrowing or perching or where they like to ambush from. Like seeing that stuff is super cool to me. So I want my customers to experience that. Well, I think that we've gone full circle there, I reckon. That was fantastic. Now, for the people that are listening, if they want to see more of what you do, if they, for some reason, haven't yet seen what you do, I don't know what Facebook groups you're a part of, if you are a part of any Facebook groups and you've missed that somehow, but for those that haven't seen or want to keep following what you're up to, where do they, where do they go to see all of your, your wonderful builds? All of my stuff is Copperhead Customs. Uh, that's on Facebook and Instagram. I don't have time to do YouTube. I have contemplated it many, many times. Uh, but I know that I would just sink way too much time and my wife would not be happy with spending even less time with me. Um, you'll also find my stuff in Tanks by Congo's pages. Yep. I have just invested in Tanks by Congo as a company, and um, I work in there full time. Uh, we are about to launch a website, which it's not just going to be a sales website. It is going to be information. It's going to be links to resources. It's going to be lighting guides, feeding guides, and not just you should do this, but why this is beneficial. Yeah, I don't want to be telling you, this, this is what you should do and you should listen to me. Despite the fact that I've been keeping for 24 years, it's not my place to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Yeah. I want to educate you. I want to carry that flag that was given to me all those years back by Grant and I want to pass that on. I want to be able to help educate people. Yeah. That's it. And so that's the, the website. It is going to be a store. We are going to have custom order forms. We're going to have sort of stock standard. We've got a big variety on there, right from Arboreal up to. So I've, I've sort of segmented it into standard, premium, and Arboreal. So yep. we want to push for people to go a minimum of three foot tall. Yeah. which is going to annoy a lot of people and I don't care. Um, I'm sorry that you can't stock that in your stores because it takes up too much space, but that the animal shouldn't be sacrificing for your store space. Mm. Um, 
And if you don't like that, too bad. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> it's going to have as many options for you to pick from as what your animal should have to pick from. And, and I think the, the other thing that you guys do very well is that if people do have some crazy idea of a, a particular design that you've been working with for years, feel free to send them a message and they'll see what they can do and have a play around with different options and that you'll come oh, yeah. up with something for sure. I've got one for you for next year. will be one too. <laughs> a nice one, the same height as your uh, nice big enclosure on the side with the shack, but I want to do the interior of the shack. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. There's, 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 there's always something different to play around with. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, my mind never stops. I, I don't sleep some nights because I can't switch off. <laughs> but, yeah, and if you don't know what you want or you don't know what your animal needs, then reach out, have mm. a chat with me. If I don't know, I will find out. I, will, I don't know everything. I'm yep. not trying to say that I know everything. I'm not trying to say that I'm this power of authority, but I am willing to talk to people that I know have been keeping said species for a long time, mm. find out what the animal wants, what their behaviour is, how much they move around, how big they get, and make a recommendation based on those facts. Yeah, I'm not interested in going, you should buy this because it makes me money. That's it. it's all it's all about the animals at the end of the day. It's all about the animals at the end of the day, but even from a business point of view, for me, if I recommend something that's not suitable to you, why would you come back to me mm. when you get another animal? Yep. We're not the cheapest by a long mm. shot, but we aim to be the best. Yep. And not just the best quality product, but the product that is correct and best for your circumstance. And that is what we're aiming for. We're, we're not trying to just be another don't really care about you or your animal, just want to make money. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not, not our aim whatsoever. That's not our, our vision for what we want the company to be. And we think that it's a shame that it has gone that way and we want to make a change. Yep. Yep. And by the sounds of things, you're making a fantastic start and it'll be very exciting to see where that goes in the meantime thank you very much for uh coming on the podcast today and having a chat uh, i know it's been a long one uh, i hope that those that have uh, listened all the way through have enjoyed uh, our, a bit of our ramblings and a bit of the process behind making the backgrounds and the thought process behind it as well um for those that again as damien said for those that want to see more of what he's up to definitely check out Cophead Customs. Um, if you've got any crazy ideas, feel free to send me a message. I'm sure you'll have some ideas to go with that for you. Um, for us, um, if you want to see what Dane's up to, Blue Horizon Reptiles, Facebook and Instagram are the main ones for him. For me, it's Josh's Aussie Reptiles on just about anything. Feel free to search it up and you'll find us. Um, and I think the main key takeaways from tonight, guys, is all about the when you're designing enclosures, it's all about functionality and keep asking yourself why that's where i'm going to leave it for tonight i hope you've enjoyed and have a good one thank you